0: 2 Samuel chapter 21. Now, I mentioned to you the rest of the content being thematic. Uh, after the rebellion of Absalom and then the rebellion of Sheba, if you've been with us on Sunday mornings, two rebellions that were ultimately uh, uh, quelled or squashed, David's the rest of David's story is told in 1 Chronicles chapters 22 through 29. One of the things that David does do In his latter years, as he makes preparations for the temple, but David did not build the temple. Ultimately, the temple was built by Solomon, but David made the preparations for the temple at the end of his life, and he would hand the baton of leadership. The next king of Israel will be Solomon, and Solomon will take that uh, baton. He will build the famous uh, Temple of Solomon, or what we call the Solomonic Temple, Um, and that's kind of the next phase of David's life. One uh, speaker I was listening to said that David's latter years were kind of colorless in a sense that they didn't have a whole lot of drama, and I'm sure David at this point of his life was looking for much less drama. Amen? (laughs) If you studied David's life, I'm sure he was grateful for a rocking chair and more peaceful times. So, um, but we are going to get a little bit more about some of the things that happened As I mentioned in David's life, uh, different periods of his career, the content is a mixed bag of difficulty and beauty, a lot like life itself. Life is a mixed bag of beauty and difficulty. Have you noticed? Trials and storms and then smooth sailing. Straightaways and hard turns. Times when life seems to make sense and everything seems to fit. And times when you scratch your head and say, what in the world is going on? And, and there are times, if we all were going to be honest tonight, sometimes we ask, Lord, what are you doing? I don't understand what you may be purposing in this, how you can possibly work this together for good. What is going on here? And I think you're going to ask some of those questions tonight as we wrestle with this story. David's whole life was like this. It was... Uh, a life of ups and downs. He was a man after God's own heart. He probably had one of the most deep and intense relationships with the Lord that's maybe ever existed in a human being. And yet he was in many ways a failure. He failed by committing adultery. He committed murder. He wasn't a good father. He did things uh, oftentimes against God's will or not in harmony with God's way, and he paid the price for it. And so one of the things that we're supposed to do when we study the life of David or we study an Old Testament account is we're supposed to try to learn from these Bible characters. One thing we can learn is that nobody's perfect. And that can give us encouragement. Even a man after God's own heart is not perfect. But we can also learn what not to do by learning the lessons that, and watching David fall as he did. One thing that you're going to see in David's kingdom, even though sometimes we have said that David's kingdom foreshadows the kingdom of God or the greater David who was coming, the son of David, Jesus Christ, who came from the line of David, uh, David's kingdom uh, often did not foreshadow the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Jesus. For example, David, in this chapter, we're going to see that he can't really deal with sin because no human being can really deal with the consequences of sin. I mean, sometimes I look around, and I'll, I'll give you a few examples. Uh, many years ago, uh, an elder, a, a dear friend of mine name, named Scott Arnold, uh, came down with an inoperable brain tumor. And uh, he knew that at best, the medical diagnosis was he was going to have five years to live if he went through a very radical surgery. He decided to do the surgery they told him when he went under the knife that they weren't even sure if he, could, he would be able to talk after he had this brain surgery. And they said, even with this, this cancer is incurable. Scott went through the, um, the procedure. He was a remarkable patient. He was witnessing his faith in Jesus. He, he came out of the surgery extremely articulate. He was able to speak and speak. He was the same old Scott. He did a video for the men's ministry exhorting us to live for Christ but yet in a matter of a couple of years, I don't remember the exact time sequence, uh, Scott died. And at the end of Scott's life, he was an elder in the church, a godly man, maybe one of the most godly men you would ever meet. Went through terrible headaches and um, difficulty, you know, just dealing with um, the fact that the cancer was going to kill him. And his lovely wife, Cherry, um, went through that. and People were visiting Scott and I know he went through his times, even though he was a great man of faith, of struggling with the problem of evil. And I remember Cherry one time saying, you know what, we're not going to try to figure out, we're not going to try to do all those angles of why this happened to Scott. Here's what we're going to say. We live in a fallen world, and things just happen. And so, but I'm sure that they, they had their questions, just like we all do, about the problem of evil. Things that show up in our world, war, uh, if you've been to a Holocaust museum, you wonder how human beings can do what they do to one another. We can talk about child abuse. We can talk about many things that we may not want to talk about tonight, but we know they're happening in our world. And, and then we could talk about you know, people who are getting away with stuff and cheating in business and cheating on their spouse, and they seem to be getting away with it and all of that. There, there's a lot of stuff that uh, and is encapsulated in the problem of evil. But I, as I mentioned, I think you're going to have a deeper appreciation of grace tonight as well. Now, the story picks up this way. There was a famine, 2 Samuel 21.1. There was a fam- famine. The Hebrew word is ra'ab. It's spelled R-A-A-B. The word famine means literally hunger. If you look it up in a Hebrew uh, dictionary, that's the word. Uh, it's defined when, a, when there's a famine that it brings hunger. In the ancient world, there was a different uh, type of life that went on. Today, if when you leave here, you could go by Del Taco. You can grab an oatmeal. No, no, don't get an oatmeal raisin cookie. I want the oatmeal raisin cookie. But you can get a different kind of cookie, like a chocolate chip. Um, you can go out of here, and you can stop by Stater Brothers tonight, and you can get food. And, and I don't think most of us have ever been to Stater Brothers, maybe, maybe a time or two where they didn't have the product that we needed. And we could grab lettuce or tomatoes or we could grab a loaf of bread or some bananas or whatever we need and we're good. We can grab the cereal, three boxes for two ninety nine. dollars So you always got to buy like too many boxes, right, to get the good price. But we, we, ha- we take a lot of things for granted. In the ancient world, you kind of lived and died with rain. You lived and died with your crops and your animals. And if there was a drought and, and a famine hit the land... Um, many people would starve and die. May, perhaps the wealthy would have some advantages. You remember when uh, there, there's, there's famines in the book of Genesis. Example, Genesis 12:1, a famine drove uh, Abram to Egypt. Later in the book of Genesis, there's another famine. And there's even a famine in the time when Joseph is in Egypt. And he proposes a solution based upon some dreams And Egypt becomes a source of grain for what the Bible describes as the whole world. In fact, the Bible tells us in the unfolding of the seals in Revelation 6, one of the seals, when it's broken, there's going to be a time of famine. And it talks about in Revelation 6, I think it's around verses 5 and 6, that there's going to be a time when uh, prices for wheat and barley escalate and some of you can remember back in the day when gas lines were extremely long and gas prices went through the roof. Some of you can remember days when interest rates skyrocketed and you might have had a, one of those adjustable loans and all of a sudden your payment went from this to this. And you're like, what am I going to do? And people run into that. You know, not a lot of people in our modern culture are, uh, have a savings account with what we might call a freedom account. Uh, a lot of people live paycheck to paycheck. And so, you know, there's a. If you've been watching the news, there's a whole homeless population in Orange County. They don't know what to do with these people. There's a homeless population in Corona, and that's not to mention we're we're in we're in America. That's not to mention third world countries. I was in India and Nepal in 2001, and we were on the streets of Calcutta where Mother Teresa did a lot of her ministry. And we were downtown, and it was pretty wild and crazy. And there was a place where, as an American, I could get into like a four-star hotel behind this glass just because I had a MasterCard and I was an American. Right outside, on the other side of, you know, maybe three inches of glass, were, were a bunch of beggars and people who were putting babies in our face and saying, you have everything, please help us. And our guides were saying, don't give them anything because you'll, you'll, you'll just get overwhelmed by beggars. And it was just a sad reality to see poverty. And, and here's what we've got. Just so you can understand how deep this is. If you have a famine in an ancient land like this, people are dying left and right. People are starving left and right. People are having to make radical decisions. And there was a famine in the days of David, during David's reign, notice, for three years. And the famine was year after year. So the way I take the language is three whole years of famine. That would be, you know, no, no uh, serious harvest coming in, crops failing, animals dying. The first thing that you're going to have to sacrifice, there's no food, is your animals. But then you need your animals, you know, for meat and, and milk and that kind of thing. And so this, this famine, uh, like all famines in the ancient world and even in modern times, was serious. It was expressed in a drought. Uh, that means no rain. You don't have rain. You don't have the growth of your crops. There's no uh, ancient sprinkler systems. They did come up with some clever ideas of cisterns back in the day. But, you know, we can turn on, we can push a button for a sprinkler box or we can, you know, hose or turn a little screw to turn your sprinklers on. But back in the day, they didn't really have that. So rain was everything. And rain, the, the withholding of rain, not always, but in some cases, became an expression of the displeasure of God. In the time of Elijah, remember, it didn't rain, I think, for, what, three and a half years. And the king was blaming, you know, you're, you're the one for all these problems. And and, he's not, and the prophet said, no, you're the problem. And God withheld the rain. In fact, uh, we do know that in the book of Revelation, once again, there's going to be a time when rain is withheld. And here, there was a problem of no rain For three years, three successive years, notice year after year after year. Now, we live in Southern California. We know what this is like, right? And the book of Joel uh, talks about a locust invasion and kind of similar conditions. And I was in a men's Bible study and I told the guys, you know, I don't believe it's outside of the realm of God today to withhold rain because California has become so goofy and so ridiculous with our lawmakers and the silly things that we come up with. I don't know what our leaders are thinking. I don't think they're thinking, actually. But, but I wonder if, if California hasn't gone through what it's gone through because God is angry with us. When I say us, I'm talking about the laws that, that um, we seem to pass so easily. And so David, being the king, sought the presence of the Lord. Middle of verse 1 Literally, the Hebrew is, he sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, it is for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now, David, you know, maybe at the end of three years, maybe at first he was thinking, oh, you know, this may not be God. Maybe it's just weather patterns. You know, stuff happens. But it was year one, year two, and year three, and David's the king. And people are coming to you as a leader and saying, what do we do? You know, we need help. People are starving. People are dying. Our animals are dying. And David did the wise thing. David sought the face of the Lord. He wanted to understand if there was some divine reason for the lack of rain. I think it's wise application, modern Christian, uh, to be careful theologically because we know, for example, Let me just park here for a second. In John 9, you know, the apostles say, Who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? And we got to be careful because there was no sin. Jesus said, This happened to this man that the glory of God might be manifest in him. Not every sickness, lack of rain. You run out of gas, uh, you know, on the freeway, and you're like, What did I do, Lord? And the voice comes back, you didn't put gas in your car. That's what happened, right? So oftentimes when things happen in your life, just take a good long look in the mirror because you've met the enemy, (laughs) right? But there are times when there's patterns maybe in our lives where we might say, okay, Lord, are you trying to get my attention? And I think it's reasonable to pray and just to ask, we, we just studied James 1.5 last Wednesday. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him what? Ask of God. And by the way, those verses are in the context. If you're going through a trial, ask God for wisdom. Like, what are you trying to teach me? And how do you want to grow me? And what may be at the root of this? And <laughs> I want to pass this test and you name it. And so David sought the face of the Lord. Uh, famines, as I mentioned, are all over Scripture. Uh, one famine is for the Word of God. Amos 8.11 says there will be a famine for the hearing of the words of the Lord. And I wonder today if there's a famine in America. A famine for the Word of God. I hope you're hungry for God's Word. I know that's why you're here tonight. But there's, there's a famine for depth, I think, in the church And, you know, I believe that you're here tonight because you want to go deeper. There's a famine in the book of Ruth uh, and so forth. So here's what God says. I want to take you to the book of Leviticus. Um, There's many passages I could show you, but you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, chapter 26. I want to make sure you understand that the application, even though we're going to make some modern application for the church, is this story is set under the law, so not under grace, and Israel and not the church. So you need to understand those settings, but take a look at Leviticus 26 as we read what God said to the nation of Israel. 26.3. Leviticus 26.3. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I shall give you rains in their season so that the land will yield its produce, and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Indeed, your threshing will last for you until grape gathering, and grape gathering will last until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. Verse 6, I shall also grant in the land so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall so eliminate harmful beasts from the land that no sword will pass through your land. But you will chase your enemies, and they will fall before, uh, before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred. A hundred of you will chase ten thousand. And your enemies will fall before you by the sword. So I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will confirm my covenant with you. God speaking to Israel. You will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. You will have plenty, in other words. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you. My soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you should not be their slaves. I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. But if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes, if your soul abhors my ordinances, So as not to carry out all of my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption and fever that shall waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, you shall sow your seed uselessly. for Your enemies shall eat it up. I will set my face against you so that you shall be struck down before your enemies. And those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when no one is pursuing you. If uh, also after these things, 18, you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times. Please note that seven times. That's going to come up more for your sins. I will also break you your pride of power. I will also make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. Your strength shall be spent uselessly, for your land shall not yield its produce, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. If then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. I will let loose among you the beasts of the field. You'll notice if they obey good things, if they don't, these are blessing and curses kind of verses to Israel. The beasts of your field, which shall bereave you of your children, destroy your cattle, reduce your number, so that your roads lie deserted. And if by these things you are not turned to me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with hostility against you. And I, even I, will strike you seven times for your sins. I will also bring upon you a sword, which will execute vengeance for the covenant. And when you gather together into your cities, I will send pestilence among you so that you shall be delivered into, my, into uh, enemy hands. When I break your staff of bread, 10 women will bake your bread in one oven. You will have much less. And they will bring back your bread in rationed amounts so that you will eat and not be satisfied. Yet, in, yet in spite, if in spite of this you do not obey me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you. And I, even I, will punish you Seven times for your sins. Turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. So this is right after now. um, Solomon has built the temple and he's praying. 2 Chronicles, go to your right, chapter 7. And this is a verse that I think became well known through the Harvest Crusades. Um, And it was given a modern application. I do think there is modern application to be made of these verses, but I do think you have to be careful. They're set in the context of the dedication of the temple. Solomon dedicates it to the Lord. The Lord, 2 Chronicles 7.12, appears to Solomon at night and says to him, 2 Chronicles 7:12, I have heard your prayer. I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens, i.e., no rain, so that there is no rain, if I command the locust, I think of the book of Joel, chapter one, verse four, chapter two, verse 25, to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, God is speaking, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and what? And pray. If they seek my face, that's what David did in our text, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin. And what does God promise? I will heal their land. Now, please understand that healing their land in this context is God saying, I will make it fruitful again. I will send rain again. I will give crops again. I will withhold if you don't obey me. But if you do repent, if you do seek my face, if you do turn, then I will bless you. And the healing of the land here, even though we've made other applications about Emotional, spiritual healing, healing of relationships, etc, is here set in a context of the fertility of the land, if you will. Now my eyes shall be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house, that is the temple, that my name may be there forever, and my eyes says God, and my heart will be there perpetually. Turn back to second Samuel 21. So you could see that in the backdrop of the nation of Israel, which was a theocracy, that means God directly ruling over the nation until they asked for a king. And when they asked for a king, remember Samuel, we're studying 2 Samuel, was upset. And God said, don't be upset. They haven't rejected you, would God say. They've rejected me from being king over them, right? (coughs) So David was the second king after Saul, but David had to inherit uh, some of Saul's mistakes. And so David sought the face of the Lord. Now, for the sake of time, I want to give you a psalm. Um, I'm not going to go there because we're going to run out of time, but it's Psalm 27. And in the middle or latter half of that psalm, David talks about, I will seek the face of the Lord. I will meditate in his temple. So that's what David's done. He has he gone to the Lord, and he has sought his face. Why is this happening, Lord? Please grant me wisdom. Back in verse 1, 2 Samuel 21, as David sought the face of the Lord, the Lord said, here's the problem. The famine is for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now, David got an answer. I don't know how he got the answer. I don't know if it was through a prophet quite possible. I don't know if it was through the ephod where they had the Urim and the Thummim and that seemed to be connected to the answering of prayers in the ancient world. Can't say for sure but somehow God got a message to David and we know that God can get a message to us when he's trying to speak to us And, and God just said it's for Saul. What's going on is because of Saul shedding blood Namely, putting the Gibeonites to death. And by the way, Saul's been dead for over 30 years at this point. Because we can track Mephibosheth being in the house of David. So this event, even though it's thematic and not um, uh, in order, in chronological order, we still know that Mephibosheth has come into David's house. And so we know that Saul's been dead for a long time. Jonathan's dead. So can a man's actions have ramifications, consequences? Can they ripple out even after someone's dead? Yes. We know some families are still reaping consequences of someone who's died. We know countries who had military dictators ravage the land are still feeling the aftershocks of the decision made by someone who's no longer on the planet. And in this case... And I don't know how all this works, to be quite candid with you. Um, God was dealing with the nation even after Saul had died because Saul had spilled the blood of the Gibeonites. And the Bible does say that uh, innocent blood, when it is shed, stains a land or uh, pollutes a land. Write down Numbers 35, 33, and 34. Bloodshed pollutes the land. The shedding of innocent blood, Ezekiel 16, pollutes or stains the land. Just like sin stains a soul. Well, the, uh, when a nation or a city is dark and does a bunch of abominable things, it pollutes, it stains, and God sees everything, right? God sees the good and the bad, and so he sees man's War and Holocaust and rape and child abuse and all of that. Well, what's going on with the Gibeonites, verse 2, is um, the Gibeonites had made a kind of a sneaky covenant in Joshua 9 with the people of Israel. And they acted like they were from a far land and they knew that Joshua was leading the children of Israel into great victories into the land of Canaan. And so they acted like they had come a long distance, but I think they just lived over the hill. And they, they disheveled their hair, and they, they acted like they had worn out shoes. And they, and they came up and they said, man, we've come on a long journey. And hey, would you make a covenant of peace with us? And of course, the Israelites were going into the land of Canaan to wipe out the land and drive the peoples out. And so they, they kind of played this, this game like, oh, we've come so far, and make a covenant with us. And the people of Israel, Joshua, um, did. They made an oath, a covenant, not to destroy the Gibeonites, who were kind of leftover people from the Amorites. And interestingly enough, the Gibeonites are actually, they source back to Saul's great-grandpa. So Saul, in his rage and zeal, and what he often did is, he was zealous for things, but he didn't do things God's way. If you look at verse uh, 2, the uh, Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the sons of Israel made a covenant with them. Write down Joshua 9. You can read this later. But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. So somewhere along the, the line, we don't know when or where, Saul, in trying to protect his nation, in his zeal in a war, uh, attempted to exterminate the Gibeonites. And in so doing, he broke an ancient oath that went back to the time of Joshua. The people of Israel, under Joshua's leadership, made an oath to the Gibeonites to protect them. Even though the Gibeonites ended up becoming servants to Israel, the oath was made. We will not harm you. We'll be at peace with you. That oath carried over all the way to the days of Saul. Let me just, I want to drive this point home. God takes oaths seriously. If That's why Jesus said, look, don't make an oath at all. Either by, either by heaven or by earth or anything else. Just let your yes be yes. And you know be no. Now, are there some legitimate oaths today? Yeah, people take an oath when they get married, for example. People may swear in a Bible in a court of law. But if you are going to make an oath, please keep it. Because God takes oaths seriously. And people are very frivolous in our modern world about covenants and oaths. They think, like, it's no big deal anymore. You can just do whatever you want for whatever reason you want. And I'm telling you right now, and again, I'm celebrating the fact that we're under grace and and all sins are forgivable except rejecting Jesus Christ. So please understand what I'm saying. I'm saying, even if you've broken an oath, God is gracious, but he's going to ask you to repent and he's going to ask you not to repeat that. And if you play games with God and you go to altars and you make oaths or you say, I'm going to swear on this or swear on that, I'm telling you right now, God does not take that lightly. And Saul, by spilling the blood of the Gibeonites, caused a consequence in the land so that the cause of the curse was Saul and his actions. I don't understand all the angles of this. I don't understand why God waited 3 decades to, you know, cause this to happen in the land. God has his reasons for his timing, and that's why God is God. And so verse 3 says, so David said to the Gibeonites, he David prayed, he found out the source, the problem that the Gibeonites were treated this way and he called probably representatives who had not been exterminated, obviously, by Saul. And he said, what should I do for you? And how can I make atonement, the Hebrew word kafar, to cover? The NIV says, how can we make amends? That is probably a good take on the Hebrew word here. Because I don't think what's going to happen next can atone necessarily for the sin. But it's, it's like, how can, there can be, how can there be a legal retribution so that this can be settled? that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord. We want to be back in a right relationship with you. So David called the Gibeonites. He asked them the question, and the Gibeonites said to him, because they were in an inferior position to Israel and to Israel's king, they said, we have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house, nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. It's kind of like when, at the time of Jesus in the first century, Rome was dominating Israel. So Israel had to get permission from Rome to do certain things. And that's kind of what the Gibeonites are saying. They're saying, look, we're under you. We're your servants. And so who are we to ask for money or to put someone to death? But by saying to put someone to death, they're implying what they want. Saul killed a bunch of our people. You've just found out by seeking the Lord that the reason that there's no rain, there's drought, there's famine, is because of what Saul did by shedding the blood of our people and breaking an ancient oath going back to Joshua. And so we want some retribution. And I think that's what they're implying. And so David said, I will do for you whatever you say. In the Torah, which is the word, the Hebrew word for the law, there is a um, principle of lex talionis. It's spelled L-E-X with a dash, T-A-L-I-O-N-E-S. It has the idea of repayment in kind, just like this. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, burn for burn, life for life. That's the law. So you read, read the book of Exodus, chapter 21, read portions of Leviticus, And what you'll find is that there's all these law, personal injury laws, you name it. If someone kills your animal, there's a way for retribution. If a man with premeditation kills another man, he pays with his life. And so this is the the Torah. This is the law over Israel at the time. There, There were ways to get grace and not everything was, you know, done this way. But, but, um, Basically, if you took a life, then you owed a life. The Bible even says in Leviticus 24, 20, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Hockey players know something about this, tooth for tooth. Uh, just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted upon him. Leviticus twenty four twenty. Now that was the law. That's what the people knew. So they said to the king, the man who consumed us and who planned to exterminate us, they're talking about Saul, verse 5, from remaining within any border of Israel, let seven men from his sons be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul. In in other words, in his hometown, the chosen of the Lord. And David replied, I will give them. Now, this is where it gets real difficult. Because in the dialogue, now remember, David has found out the source of the curse, the source of the drought. People are dying all around. I don't know how much damage is going on. Now he's found out the reason. And when he meets with the Gibeonites, now they have a negotiation and they've asked for seven of Saul's male descendants to make things right. Seven is probably a symbolic number. It's probably nowhere near the number of people that Saul killed. But seven is a number of what? completion so that would probably represent the whole house of Saul so they ask for seven and David uh, says I agree I will give you these seven and they do say in this verse that we we are going to hang them we are going to hang them before the Lord I do want you to notice there is no further inquiry to the Lord they don't pray and say Lord should we do this It doesn't say that the Lord is giving the specific direction to take seven or anything like that. This is just something that they do in their own uh, decision-making and dialogue. And it's in the ancient world under lex talionis, under Torah law, and this is what they decide because David knows that if the famine is not removed from his kingdom, what's going to happen? Everybody's going to die. And so seven now, um, are going to be killed. See the word hang there? The Old Testament says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. You've all seen that. There's some debate about the Hebrew word here, and there are those who argue this means to be impaled, and some even believe this means to be crucified on a hill before the Lord in some way to cover or atone for sin. Interesting. And so they choose the location. They say, this is what we want. David agrees. I'm sure it had to be painful for David. The king spared Mephibosheth. We know he had, he had adopted Jonathan's son. We've read about that in chapter 9. The son of Jonathan, son of Saul, because of an oath that uh, David had made with Jonathan, an oath of the Lord, which was between them. So David wanted to honor that oath between David and Saul's son, Jonathan. And so David spared Mephibosheth. I'm sure he was extremely happy about that. But they had to choose. They had to choose seven. And so the king took the two sons of Rizpah. That was Saul's concubine, who Abner took advantage of earlier in the book, if you've been with us. They took two of her sons. Uh, She's the daughter of Aya. Armoni and Mephibosheth, that's a different one there, whom she had born to Saul. And they took five sons of Merib. If you have a King James or New King James, it's got Michael there. That's incorrect. It, that can't be. So it, the, there are some manuscripts that have Merib, M-E-R-A-B. Check out 1 Samuel 18, 19 to confirm this. Uh, five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, so these would be his grandsons, whom she had borne to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholathite. Then he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and sadly they hanged them in the mountain before the Lord. So the seven of them fell together. Some believe that they were pushed off a cliff. You might remember the Bible says that um, Judas after betraying the Lord and saying, I betrayed innocent blood, and he throws the money down in the temple. The Bible says he went out and hung himself. But then the book of Acts says that he fell and his insides, I'm sorry, but here it is, his insides gushed out. Which was it? Did he hang himself or did he fall? Well, it would appear that sometimes a hanging victim um, was either then pushed off of something or perhaps the rope broke. I don't know for sure. But they fell together, all seven. And notice they were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. The beginning of the barley harvest is when? It's the spring. It's our March, April. It's the month of Nisan. And when did Jesus die? On the Passover in the month of Nisan. Just some interesting connections. Two plus five equals seven. So there are seven if you want ritually killed of male relatives of Saul on a hill they say before the law before the lord five were Saul's grandsons two from Saul's concubine or his mistress or his other wife and they're hung on a tree and Rizpah the daughter of Aiya she's the mom of the two took sackcloth a uh, garment for mourning She spread it out for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until it rained. Some believe the autumn rains, which would be in the fall, on them from the sky. And she allowed neither the birds of the sky to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. I don't know how long she was out there, you guys, but this mom of the two and protecting all seven puts sackcloth on a rock, kind of a makeshift bed, She's a mom in mourning. And since part of this deal was to leave the bodies exposed and not give them uh, what we might call a proper burial for shame purposes, to to express the curse, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, even though the law said that the bodies had to be buried quickly. She stayed out there. I don't know how long she stayed out there. She's a grieving mother and to bury her sons or would eventually have to do that. And what, a, what an act of compassion, bravery. It makes me think of Mary at the crucifixion site watching Jesus die. It makes me think of uh, Joseph of Arimathea asking for the body of Jesus. Uh, I don't know how long she was out there, but she got the birds away. She kept wild animals away. And it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, had done, the concubine of Saul, had done. Someone came to David and said, you won't believe what I just saw. That woman is out there on the mountain. She won't leave. She's protecting those bodies. So David went, and I think David was moved with maybe a combination of compassion, regret, honor, love, for Rizpah's example, David went, took the bones of Saul, the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead. Write down 1 Samuel 31. That's where these men went to get the bones. Uh, Saul and his sons were hung on the walls of Beit Shan, you might remember, to be uh, kind of just put out there as a symbol of we've, we've taken these guys down. And these men of Jabesh-Gilead went and took the bodies and gave them a proper burial. Well, David went and got those bones and here's what they would do. They would take the bones of the the people who had decomposed over years and they put them into a smaller bone box, which is called an ossuary. And if you go to Israel, um, at some point in your life, you'll get to see some locations that literally have ossuaries, bone boxes, and they're only about yay big. And that's what they do. And they they have family tombs where they'll put uh, the bones of family members over the generations in there. And so... He took the bones of Saul, Jonathan, whom he loved so much, who they had stolen from the open square of Beit Shan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines struck down Saul in Gilboa. He brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there. They gathered the bones of those who had been hanged, so the seven, and they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin in Zelah, probably a couple miles north of Jerusalem in the grave of Kish, his father, Saul's father. Thus they did all the king commanded. And after that, after what? After this act of mercy, God was moved by entreaty for the land. It's interesting. When I first was studying this, it seemed to me that God was moved to heal the land after the death of the seven. You could call it the making amends, the atonement. But... That's not what the scripture says. It actually says that God was moved to, uh, to, as to the entreaty for the land, the prayers for the land, after this act of mercy with the proper burial of the bones, this act of compassion. Okay, we've come full circle on a difficult text. We'll park and conclude. What do we pull out of this? Number one, God is holy. And when you read Bible accounts, and God's the same yesterday, today, and forever, just understand God is holy, and he does judge sin. Number two, David could not deal with the sin issue. If he could, he would have done something different. I'm sure David took no delight in having to probably handpick seven people to give over to the Gibeonites to die. Sad, tragic, no, no easy way to talk about it or even perhaps to make sense of it. But number three, I picture a hill about a thousand years later and a figure on a cross whose name is Jesus, the greater David. And I think about the hope of the gospel. And I understand from my understanding of the gospel, and I'm going to take you to Romans 5 and we're done The beauty of how on the cross, Jesus Christ satisfies the wrath of God. Here's what it says. Romans 5. We're just going to read verses 6 through 11. And Shane, are you here? If you can hear my voice, we're going to do a closing. Oh, there you are. Romans 5, 6. While we were still helpless, we the church. Romans 5, 6. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's all of us for one will hardly die for a righteous man though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die but god demonstrates his own love toward us toward me toward you in this that while we were yet sinners romans 5:8 christ died for us he died for me he died for you much more than having now been justified just as if we've never sinned, declared righteous before God the Father by Christ's blood, we shall be saved from what? From the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. See, I am so glad when I come to the end of this story that I am in a new covenant under grace. Amen. Thank God for grace. But here is the scary thing. There are people walking around Corona, Norco, Yorba Linda, Riverside, and surrounding communities. And you'll say to them, Brother, let me tell you about some good news about the cross of Jesus, the blood of Christ, His atoning sacrifice once for all, God no longer counting my sins against me because they were nailed to the cross. And people say, Ah, I think I'm good. Uh, I think I've been a good enough person. When I end up before the Lord someday, I'll just have a conversation with the big man upstairs. And we'll talk, and I'll tell him, you know, I wasn't so bad. I knew a Christian down the street, and, and, and I, I think I was better than them. And, you know, no. You are either going to get law or grace. Knowing what you know about law, if you knew nothing tonight and you've come in and just studied this, which would you prefer? law or grace. I'll tell you what I'll prefer. I'll take grace and all I can get. Dr. Walter Martin was told by an old Nazarene preacher many moons ago. Dr. Martin, I love how you preach because you crack all the nuts that nobody's willing to crack. (laughs) Hey, I'm quoting. I'm quoting him. Right? You, you deal with the texts and the issues that very few people are willing to deal with. And he said, Just keep doing it, Doc. And just keep giving them the gospel of grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if they won't accept the gospel of grace, make sure you leave them with Moses. (laughs) Here's what he meant. People around our town, they don't know what law really looks like. God's law. if If you don't have the grace of Christ covering you, cleansing you, You're gonna get the exacting law of God and it will be merciless because God is a righteous judge. But God loves you so much that he came down, took on the form of a human born as a baby in Bethlehem and satisfied his holiness at Calvary for you. And you are gonna stand righteous before the Father one day, without blame, perfect, having the righteousness of Jesus credited to your account, your sin going to Him, the great exchange of the cross, because God loved you that much. God demonstrated His love for you. But if you have a doubt whether you have received that grace, all I could say is when you really understand it, I don't know why anyone wouldn't run to the foot of the cross and experience that cleansing flow. Amen? That's the gospel. Somebody put it this way. In the gospel, we find that we're worse off than we really thought, but more love than we could ever imagine. And that's the intersecting truths of the cross. They intersect at the person of Jesus. God is so serious about sin that Jesus Christ had to die in that horrible way for you. But God is so loving that Jesus Christ died in that horrible way for you. God loves you. And so you got to run to his love because God is holy, but he is love. And I think the room is filled with, you know, most of you I know personally, you have already run And you've already allowed that ransom price to be yours. And you're free. So you don't have to be under some trip or some burden tonight or whatever. Be careful. You know, when we read the Old Testament, that you're making sure you know who you are in Christ, right? But we don't want to play games with God either. And we don't want to trifle with His grace either. So somewhere we got to find that tension is Christians under the new covenant of, of walking out in gratitude and spreading the, the good news of the gospel uh, because we know, we know what the bad news is like too, right? Father, we are so grateful to be together tonight. And even though we went through a very tough text, and I'm sure we're going to leave here with some question marks tonight about your role in this and what you thought of it and what it really means but in the end, Lord, we know we can look to another hill called Calvary, Mount Moriah, where Jesus died to pay the ultimate price. And I'm just going to ask you to keep your head and heart bowed. If you have not received this, this payment for your sin, if you haven't run to Jesus, if you're not sure that you're saved, you're not sure that you've experienced the grace of God, you can't earn it, we don't deserve it, it's been paid in full, but you've got to receive it. The Bible says, to as many as received him, Christ, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. You've got to have a moment where, if you want to call a transaction is made, where you make it official, where you trust the Lord, where you repent of your sin and ask him to save you. And he will. Something like this, if you're not sure, you know him. Lord Jesus, pray it if it's you. Come into my life. Thank you that you came to this world for me. Thank you that you died on that horrible cross for me. Thank you for your resurrection. I believe in you. I trust in you. I turn from my sin, my pride, me trying to do it my way. I know I can't do it. And I ask for your grace. I ask for your mercy. Please apply your payment for my sin to my life. Please make me your child. I want to follow you. I want to serve you. And I thank you for grace. Lord, for those who have cried out to you tonight, those who may watch this later or hear this on a radio broadcast in the future, I pray they would cry out to you right now and that many, many would experience the beautiful cleansing grace of Christ. In his holy and matchless name we pray. Amen.